Hello, welcome to Payne's Plough's Insights. Insights is a new series of podcasts live from the Payne's Plough rehearsal room where our director and playwright reflect on the week's progress, featuring a different guest each week. The following content may contain occasional strong language. Uh, hello, welcome to uh, You Stupid Podcast. My name is James Grieve, I am one of the joint artistic directors at Payne's Plough and I am directing You Stupid Darkness, the brand new play from Sam Steiner who is with me right here at Payne's Plough. Hi James. Hi Sam. Also with us are our producers Joe and Phil. Hi Joe and Phil. Hello. Yes, excellent. <laughs> so this is a bit of an experiment for us, we've never done anything like this before, bear with us. Uh, the thought was that as we are in our first week of rehearsals on this new play that we do a little podcast once a week to try and give you a bit of an insight into what's going on in the rehearsal room uh, and how we are, how we make a new play at Payne's Plough. Um, we hope that we will be interesting enough to sustain uh, around about six short episodes and if we're not we're going to invite lots of exciting guests in who are more interesting than us. Um, but kicking us off, uh, I wanted to talk to Sam a little bit about the, the gestation and the development of the play. So, um, You Stupid Darkness, where did the title come from? So the title comes from a Charlie Brown comic strip. Um, in which shall I, shall I just describe the comic strip? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. So in in the comic, Linus goes up to I think Linus goes up to Charlie Brown and says, and it's all dark, and he goes, I've and he goes, he's got a candle, and he says, I've always heard that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And then there's the next panel, and it's just Emily outside shouting, "You stupid darkness!" into the ether. Um, and I thought that was quite fun and quite sweet. And um, and just kind of interesting about how we, you know, how we help, how we how we help people, and how we remain positive in a dark world. And what came, I'm always fascinated by titles. What comes first, mm. the title or the, or the? So with this, weirdly, I wrote a short play called "You Stupid Darkness." I've always had it as a as a title idea that I've always wanted to do, and then came up with the concept for this play separately, um, and then went through a load of different titles, in the first couple of weeks of development and then landed on this one and was like, oh wait, this is... But you'd written a play called You Stupid I wrote before. a short play that was that's, that was on at the Soho Theatre. Um, it's like, you know, it's like five to ten minutes long called You Stupid Darkness um, about something entirely different. I did um, not know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, so like people would have seen You Stupid Darkness before but in a completely different guise. In a completely guise. different guise. Yeah, well, I... I I basically decided that not enough people had seen it <laughs> that good. I would get pulled up on it. <laughs> until so now, until we're like putting on a podcast. Have, you got a, sto- have you got a store of titles that are like these are like really yeah, good Yeah, I've got a note on my phone them. with like a list of, of good of fun titles that might make a good play someday. Um, get, tell, tell us one of those titles. Um, one of them is called, I'm trying to decide <laughs> which one's not embarrassing to read. So there's another, there's another Charlie Brown inspired one. Okay, go on. Called The Kite Eating Tree, which Amazing. I quite like, which could be really fun. You heard um, it here first, guys. The Kite Eating Tree by yeah. Sam Steiner coming to a theatre near you soon. Yeah, it's another Charlie Brown. I probably need to get my titles from elsewhere. <laughs> um, okay, so you used to be done as the play. Mm. Uh, when did you start writing it? So we, it, this is a commission, a, a co-commission between Payne's Plough and Theatre Royal Plymouth. Mm. When, did we, when did we do that? So the commission, I think, was almost exactly two years ago. 
almost to the day, I think. Right. Uh, we're recording this on the 14th of January. I think that might have been around the exact day that I was commissioned. Oh, was it? Wow, that's um, cool. And, uh, yeah, so I started working on it. And you, you, you and Simon Stokes, who um, was artistic director of Plymouth at the time, very kindly said to me, uh, you gave me the provocation of basically saying, write whatever you want, and we'll put it on. Um, which, obviously, you now clearly regret. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, How do I get out of this? <laughs> no, you basically said to me, write, we don't really want you to write a monologue. Um, we probably can't afford more than four actors <laughs> so write a play for a cast of between two and four and yeah. write about whatever you want yeah and so I went away and started thinking of ideas to write for between two and four actors um and that's yeah so I started working on that and then we got together and had a conversation about a few different ideas and then decided that this was the one that felt most exciting so just on that provocation how mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested how that is for writers so at Paints Proud, we commission two productions. So when we commission writers, as as with you, we say we're going to put this play on. Um, how does how, how does that feel as a writer? To... It's an amazing feel. It's an amazing kind of feeling of having someone have that much faith in you. To be honest, um, it's terrifying in that you go, if I screw this up, uh, I'm screwing this whole company because yeah. they can't they can't get out of it. But it's an amazing. Um, provocation I think because it means you're not you're writing quite practically which is always how when I most enjoy it I don't really like I think it's why I'm trying to write plays not trying to write novels because I like to work practically and I like to work to production and with oh well this is what the, the, the director's taste is and this is what the company quite likes and these oh, these actors might be available, so what if I heard it in, these, in their voices? And I think that practicality I find quite exciting. And um, so you guys saying, we're going to put this on, is a great provocation because it lets you be practical rather than be kind of hy- hypothetical and airy-fairy, mm. I think. I'm glad that it's not uh, that the result is not paralysis through fear. I mean, you go through that stage. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, Hopefully you come out the other side. And so when you say, like, uh, do, do you see it on stage when you're writing it? Do you see it physically? With this play, I really did, yeah. Right. Because Not with every play, um, but with this play, I think it's a really kind of... It's a one-room play. And it's... I think so much of it is a, is a is a, is told visually and about characters giving a look to each other or characters kind of exchanging something. And so I very had a very particular image of it in my head. Um, throughout just the whole process. Just, we should we should just explain what the play is it's about. about. Yeah, we? yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the play, Sam. Okay, cool. So the play is about. It's set in a kind of mid-apocalyptic world in which everything is falling apart and nobody knows why. And the play itself is set in the office of a call centre, a helpline that's established for people who are afraid that the world's going to end. So it's essentially four people on the phones doing a weekly night shift, um, telling people not to worry, despite all the horrible things that are happening outside the window. And as the government prepares to vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal, what mm. could possibly have inspired you to write a play about a <laughs> near-apocalyptic future? <laughs> I think it was a mixture. You know, well, I mean, it's interesting because I, 
Uh, we first talked about this idea almost two years ago. Yeah. And so I think pre pre Brexit vote. Li- yeah, pre Brexit yeah. vote. Yeah. But I remember at the time and a long time pre Trump, like yeah, the, the world was yeah must a very have been different quite a long place. time pre Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he, I mean he must have been being talked about at that stage, but not not yeah. seriously. No. no. Um, and I just remember it feeling kind of everything feeling a bit apocalyptic then, and I just wonder if we have if there's something about the way we receive information at the moment that feels kind of apocalyptic and kind of like an onslaught of negativity. Mm. Um, And it was a mixture of of that impulse and I find myself as a natural optimist. I generally kind of believe things are going to be okay even if the uh, evidence suggests otherwise and so it was, I think writing a play was an attempt to interrogate the validity and usefulness of that natural state. Yeah. Yeah. So the four characters, uh, mm. Francis, John, Angie and Joey, all work in this, uh, on this helpline that's called Brightline that is, to my mind, it feels a bit like the Samaritans, but maybe not on, uh, on as big a national scale, a sort yeah. of local branch version of yeah. the Samaritans. And what fascinates me about the play is that although... Um, Although the outside world feels like the apocalypse is coming or indeed has arrived, within the four walls of the helpline, they are tremendously positive and hopeful and trying to summon uh, joy from life. Um, Was that a a conscious thing when you were writing a play as a sort of response to what was happening in the world, that you you were writing characters who were innately optimistic and hopeful and yeah I mean I think there's some there's a there's definitely one of the main conflicts in the play characters who are more positive and characters who are more negative um but I wanted I really wanted to write something I felt I felt like we've been seeing a lot of uh television film and theatre that was quite negative and quite like talking about how screwed we all were Mm. and I wanted to write something that felt like it acknowledged how screwed we all are, but uh, but still had a kind of faith in in people and in the um, that people are trying to be good and trying to do something helpful um, rather than trying to just screw each other over. Um, so I I wanted to kind of I wanted to write a hopeful play about the end of the world essentially, and I wanted to write a play that believed in the in goodness that should um, have been our tagline shouldn't it you used to be dark as a hopeful play about the end of the world yeah, it would have been, yeah. Do you, as a writer do you feel like when you when you start a new play that it has to have something to to say about the political state we're in or the socio-economic state we're in or i think it has to i don't think it has to have something to say i think it needs to pose a question right about it right. um I think it definitely needs to be about, for me, the best plays are about more than they're about. So they're about the characters and the drama that's happening, but they also resonate into the political, social sphere in a, in a way that's, that's interesting. Um, I, didn't want, I didn't want it to have too much of a point to prove. I wanted it to be like, to, yeah, to pose a question. 
and to kind of hopefully take the take the temperature of how a lot of us are feeling and represent that on stage. Mm. Um, I think Do you it, consider yourself to be a political writer? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's. I think I think all theatre is political, just by the very nature of the fact that it's a load of people in a room together, um, and I think that it, that makes it political because the the form of it is political. It was, you know, it was born in the same society that democracy was born in, and that's what theatre is. I think. Um, I think there's a difference between someone like James Graham who writes very who writes brilliantly um directly politically mm. um i don't think this is that kind of play i think it's it's a play that's um that is political with a small p rather than a big p maybe yeah yeah, yeah. so going back to that original commission 2 years ago we yeah. we had to do the usual we're paying to plow, we don't have a massive amount of money, please don't make anything too expensive. Yeah. Although you tried. Yeah. Um but I remember <laughs> there also bit there being another provocation or another bit of guidance that is is also something we say to all writers, which yeah. is um uh, we think about the whole country because we're a touring company, we're very conscious that um our work actually is very rarely seen in London. The vast majority of the stuff that we do, and indeed this uh, co-commission and co-production with Theatre Royal Plymouth is going to premiere out of London. Um, so we, we'd, we always talk to writers, and I remember talking to you about just thinking about a story that would resonate nationwide. Wherever we tour the show, uh, we, we, you know, we'll tour it to Plymouth, we'll tour it to Sunderland maybe, Glasgow, Cardiff. It needs to speak to audiences in all those places. Um, how, how was that as a provocation to receive, and how and and what was your thought process in terms of making this play um, a, a story that resonates nationwide, which I think it is. I think you've done very successfully. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely in my mind throughout. Um, I think I th- I think I think about that with with most of the things I write, just because I'm I'm not from London and I don't. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Manchester. Yeah. Um, despite losing my accent in the last few years, um, uh, yeah, and I don't really, I don't really like things that feel like they exclude um, people who aren't, who aren't, um, who don't live in London, who aren't part of a very particular kind of section of society, or aren't, or who aren't directly involved in the theatre industry. Um, so it's it's on my mind. It's I always try and try and make something that has a, a wider reach. I guess um, I think with this play, it feels the most localist of the things I've written. Partly because of that provocation, I don't really know if I made any conscious decisions about that, or if it was just a kind of slowly working out the tone of it, mm. and knowing that you guys were putting it on. And going, I want to make a play that feels like it's a Payne's plow play, um, and I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know if it was as purposeful as as me, you know, inserting that in, or it just kind of slowly found its way into the script. It hasn't. It's not specified where it's set. No. In the country, it's set in the UK. Yeah. We know that much. Yeah. But the place names, no a few place names, are fictional place names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was that, what what was the decision there? That was about going, and it's the same, 
because this is a play that's set ostensibly in the future, in a world that is not quite the present, our present world. It was going. I don't want it to. I don't want to set it in a specific town in Lancashire or wherever, because it makes. I think it will make an audience in Plymouth, for example, go. Oh right, so this isn't about us. This is about them. Yeah. And so I wanted it to be a play that could be anywhere in, in the country, really. Yeah. And I think that's what's what's brilliant about how we've cast it. I think what's really exciting about how we've cast it is we've got accents from all over the place. So like. David's from Glasgow, Andrew's from South Shields, um, uh, Becky's from Leicester, and and Lydia's from Northampton. Wolverhampton, yeah. And it's um, and that's though that kind of mesh of accents, I think, works really well for the play because it's like feels local, but it also feels nationwide and really exciting. That's interesting, isn't it? And it, but that that felt like a really conscious choice. Like we had that conversation, yeah. didn't we, when we were casting the show that it felt really important to have a wide cross-section of people of actors who represented different parts of the country and those different accents just really help to uh, support the fact that it's not set anywhere yeah specific yeah um so and that and that casting process was really interesting wasn't it so we we we, the commission was Two years ago, we then spent what, like eighteen months doing. How many drafts did you do before we got to car? Before we got to auditioning, I think we did three. Three, um, yeah. which I found, which I loved, um, because it's 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 the longest I think I've ever spent working on a script. The the nice thing about it was that I could just have have loads of time away from the script between drafts. So I think after that first draft came in, I had like three months away from it before going back to the second draft. And that meant that I, it had been going around my mind for all that time. And I had, I think, regained some form of objectivity about it, which meant that going back to it, I could, I could just work on it better. Whereas if I find when I've worked in a smaller, in a smaller more intense period on something, you just lose all, you can't see the wood through for the trees and yeah. stuff. Um, so having that length of time, which I think was your idea, was an amazing gift I think for the script um, and that was that was the sort of the case where we go you've got here have six months to write a first draft yeah. and then we just sat down and talked about that first draft yeah. we had a conversation around various different elements of it and then yeah. you went away and redrafted yeah and as I remember it was mainly you kind of just asking me questions about it um, which again was exciting it wasn't I think you t- yeah, I think you told me to take one thing out, which was a budget thing that I went slightly overboard on. Was that when? But, uh, uh, was that when the like half an aeroplane? Yeah, 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 yeah. Less than half an aeroplane. Okay, yeah, like, a like, small bit of an aeroplane. Yeah. In the in the first half of this play, a small piece of an aeroplane crashes through the ceiling of Brightline Call Centre, which was undeniably dramatic. But um, both Simon Stokes and I considered our respective organisations' budgets and thought maybe we should, maybe and, should rein him in. And as I remember, I also made the point that it was slightly heavy-handed. Yes, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yes, maybe so. Um, um, but yeah, mostly I think you just asked me questions about what I, the things I was trying to get across and then gave me loads of time to go and process those and, and figure it out, which was amazing. And then fast-forwarding, I think it was after draft three that we first heard it allowed yeah so then we, we got we got a group of brilliant actors who've kindly gave gave us some time and we we 
it just read the play a couple of times over the course of a day, yeah. which was incredibly instructive, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was revelatory. Yeah. So you only get so far on the page. Um, and then and then you wrote draft four, and it was draft four that we took into auditions. Is yeah. That right? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that is right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on draft five. Um, audi- how is auditioning for a writer? I mean, I... I find it really fascinating and really useful, not just in the search for actors, but actually mm. in my in my, it helps me understand the play better. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think you understand because when you when you've got dozens of people coming in and reading the same passage, passage, you see why people are making the choices that they're making, and it's you know you basically got a a roster of people who are interpreting your script and that's so instructive on how it just gives you so many different views on what you've written and so it's it's a weird process because you're hearing lines that you that you've only ever heard in your head done 20 times 20 times in a row yeah yeah and that's uh it's yeah it's bizarre but it's very instructive i think it's really instructive, and and I, I hope actors who don't end up getting the part know oh, this will be very this will be scant consolation. I appreciate, but but know that everybody who comes into that room and auditions actually is really helping us understand the play. Yeah, massively. You know, I know yeah. that's not what, what what actors want out of it necessarily, but you you often learn as much from those people who are not right the part for whatever reason as you do for the, from the people that you end up yeah. giving the part to Absolutely. it's really so instructive in working out who the characters are and yeah and, and for how sure. they operate and it's a really intensive few they, oh, we, we auditioned maybe over a month I guess yeah it was it was about that length of time yeah uh, and met a huge range of people and um, and, yeah. and, that, and that in itself was amazing to see so many different kinds of personalities to come in yeah. that came in and so much of it's not about going or um, I don't think it's about going who's the best actor at all. It's about going who really brings out this thing that we need them to bring out completely, in this role. Completely, completely. Um, who's in the, yeah, who, who's, who's right in the room. You yeah. Know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a fascinating process. Um, and then we say, so fast forward, then we say we cast the play and then we read it pre-rehearsals. We did yeah. another reading. So in December... Uh, we spent a day reading the play three times again, didn't we? With two yeah. of the actors who we'd actually cast, yeah, and two cast. other brilliant actors who came in and helped us out for the day. Uh, and we just read it three times in a row, mm-hmm. and and that then sent you off to do one final redraft for the start of rehearsals. Yeah, so I kind of went away over Christmas, and um, and that that final reading was really useful to hear it three times in such quick succession because you just realize you hear the rhythms of it more when you hear it that many times I think and you hear it in like half the actors voices who we're going to use and um and you just feel where there are like lulls in the drama that you need to like pick up a bit more and when things feel a bit clunky or um or, or a bit overly plotty you kind of feel that more I think then um, so that was so useful to go into the final draft, I think. So you, and you did some really brilliant, um, quite forensic work on that final draft. I mean, it, it, it's a it wasn't a, it wasn't a fundamental rewrite, was it? It was just like it was just 
moving a few things around, fixing all that. Yeah, I think so much of redrafting is about, or at least for me, is about going, oh, I've got these moments that I really like in this play. How do I make them feel as powerful as I can? So then, t- almost two years to the day, I hadn't quite realised it was that. Is that? I um, think it is. Yeah, it was that exact a timeline. But yeah. brilliant. So almost two years to the day, then you uh, Monday morning you came into Payne's Power for first day of rehearsals. Yeah. How is that for writers? So the room to just to describe the scene. We've got a little rehearsal room at Payne's Power. Um, where we start, we tend to start our rehearsals before um, the show outgrows the room and we need to move somewhere bigger. But I, it's never been as packed as it was on Monday for our first day of rehearsals. Yeah. There, there, I don't know how many people were there, were there but... In my head, I, like, I know this isn't true, but in my head it's like a hundred people. <laughs> 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 there were like a hundred <laughs> people. A hundred people. Um, because brilliantly, um, our, our co-producers of Plymouth um, Theatre Royal bought a lot of their team up, which is wonderful. It's yeah. a long, long, long journey for them. It was, it, was, it was wonderful to have them all. Um, and we invited in the whole of the team at Payne's Plough, uh, of whom there are ten, uh, and we invited our um, PR company and our, our graphic designer. And so yeah. there was lots of people in the room, as well as the, creative, the full creative team, uh, the acting company, so I guess there were maybe not quite a hundred. I think it was, it was probably about 25, 25. <laughs> Nearly a hundred then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. There was like a lot of people, there's a lot of people in the room. And um, so yeah, how did, how was, how does that feel? Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it was really exciting and it was like, wow, all these people are on our team and behind the show, which is a lovely feeling uh, because, you know, so much of the... For me, so much of the process has just been me sitting at home writing this this thing that's just in, that's in my head or whatever. So to feel that come alive in such a kind of peopled way uh, was amazing. It was also pretty scary um, <laughs> because uh, because you know it, it's the first time the actors have met. Um, it's the first time they're reading it together, um, and the play is a bit of a chaotic one to read as well because it's. Because it's set in a helpline, there's uh, in a helpline call centre. There's often two or three people speaking at once, so it's a it's a tough one for them. And it's tough. You formatted it in a way that is not uh, familiar to yeah. to many people. As in, it doesn't look like a normal yeah. play script. So just describe what it looks like. On so page. I've written it in landscape uh, with usually three, two or three columns. Um, across the page for people to speak at the same time and kind of scored it like um, like like it's a piece of music so someone um, uh, someone speaks at the same time as others or just after um, or something it's something I've totally stolen from Alice Birch but uh, yeah, so <laughs> I don't Birch want to claim credit for this to me of a suicide <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the other play. play that I know that is written in the same sort of landscape multi-column yeah. form yeah. slightly different because this is in this is one room whereas Alice's play was yes. three rooms which is even more crazy so first rehearsals loads of people in the room we do a little bit of a Hello, everyone says who they are and where they come from. Yeah, um, what they had for dinner. <laughs> um, and then we did, we read the play. Yeah. This so is the first time the, the full company of actors had read the play together. And they were doing so in, in this, this room for people. Um, how was that? Just because you, you have been living this for, for two, living with this 
stack of yeah. 120 pages of paper for, yeah. for two years and then suddenly it's this is it's our cast now thing. and these yeah. are their voices and I, I think the weirdest thing about it and I think this might sound really sad and I really don't mean it to because it's, it's, it's more exciting than sad but you realise I realised when we were when we just when we were starting it that this is the this is the last day that those voices are in my are as as I've had them in my yeah, head for the last sure, two years sure, yeah. because you know everything else I've written I if I look back on or whatever I hear in the voices of the actors yeah, that did it did, yeah, so yeah. that day marked the last day that the voices were as I imagined them and and that's really exciting because you know they're about to be taken over by this amazing cast and made into things that are infinitely more interesting and nuanced um, but it's also a, a, a kind of goodbye in a weird way yeah. um, to these imagined people yeah, that, really that I've had in my head so yeah, yeah. so we did a read through um, and then we did a model box showing and maybe in another episode we should talk uh, a little bit about the design yeah. process because that's sort of run parallel to the development of the play and the casting process um, but we also gather around the model box and, and see so we hear the play and then we also gather around the model box and um, and see it physically for the first time which yeah. is always a real wow moment I think particularly for the actors because they won't have seen it before we've yeah. obviously we've seen the model box before but, but how is how does that how is that for you seeing because again you've imagined something in your mm. head for so long and now here is a physical realization well, of it in, in a weird way it's very much like the acting like listening to the actors do it because the as we were talking about i've had to, because it's quite an imagistic play it's quite a um it's a one room play that's told in images really um i have imagined a very a very distinct room and the design that amy's done is infinitely more interesting than the bland, uh, very kind of straight on one I've had in my head. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's a weird one because I've already lost, I've already lost it and gone, of course that, that my mental one was a bit dumb. Uh, and, and Amy's tells so much more story and gives us so, so much more about, I know you always describe it as a playground, um, for the actors to kind of play in, um, and but it's a similar thing where you go, oh, I've I've let go of the one that I've been imagining, and now I've just got Amy's kind of really creative, really, uh, you know, really it's so full of personality. Her design, I think, um, which is really it's really great. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that more yeah, at some stage for and, sure. try and, and try and get Amy to to, to come and chat yeah. to us. And um, so then, last thing really is, is what happened the, in the rest of week one rehearsal. So we had we yeah. had day one that's very much about like hello everyone. Read the play, look at the model box, go home, uh, deep breath, and and then we came in on Tuesday morning for day two, and we spent the rest of the week kind of sectioning and sketching. So just talk us through that. Yeah, well, I'm kind of interested in what. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in your view on this because we basically what we did in week one was go through each of the sec- sections of the scene which are often happening simultaneously with another, mm. with each other, and um, try and make some kind of sense of them so that the actors had a, had a proper programme for what happens. But you'd already gone... I'm always interested in directors' prep and how, and how they prepare and how much, of, how much of their job is reactive 
how much of it is is all actually engineered and you're not telling us um couldn't possibly say (laughs) um it's a really good question so in terms of the sectioning uh we had to come up with a slightly with a new way of breaking the play down because uh it's not a traditional form so i often in the first week of rehearsals on a new play spend time with the actors uniting the play and there's always a debate about what a unit is but essentially it's a unit of action that, that means you can break down scenes that might be 20 pages long into much smaller chunks. And that does two things. It helps you rehearse in smaller chunks because if you just try and rehearse 20 pages, it's, it's just a, too much of a headfuck. Yes. Um, uh, but it also helps, I think, it helps my brain, it helps the actor's brain work out a kind of chronology of the play that they can start um, getting into their bodies when you, when you're faced with a with 120 pages this play is yeah. of text in multiple columns it's it, it's baffling like it's yeah, you know it's a, a huge yeah it's like it's a this huge it's like an A to Z map you know it's yeah. all map books and you're like how am I ever going to learn how am I ever going to have the knowledge you know um, so the poor the the purpose of sectioning this week was just to go, let's just break this down into really manageable, much smaller chunks, um, which weren't units because we c- I couldn't really, I couldn't work out how to unit this play because it's all it's like units happening on top of each other, but were but felt like episodes of action that sometimes were episodes of action that all of the characters were in, but sometimes were episodes of action that, that just one person, one yeah. character was in. Yeah, one of the things that I found interesting about doing that is that, which I guess I hadn't really realised, is that some characters just kind of hop from episode to episode, yeah. right? And they kind yeah. of and they kind of hop pop in for a little while and then and pop then back pop out. out again. Yeah. yeah, which is um, kind of brilliant. Yeah, which is just a I think a really clear way of explaining how the play works that I just had it that would have really helped me if I figured that out earlier on. <laughs> but, um, so I did all that work, I did that work myself at home, but then what's brilliant, always brilliant is that then you have discussions in the rehearsal room that change your opinion. So I think it's, it's really, to me it's really important that I have a sense of the play and what I want to do in week one myself, but that, I'm, that I walk into the room completely open to changing my mind about anything. So, you know, I'd sort of go, oh, maybe there's a section here, and one of the actors would go, well, I don't think there is actually. And, and that's great, so then you go, oh yeah, maybe you're, that's right, maybe I've missed that this action flows into the next column. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we spent the week, uh, most of, we, well, we spent Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday going through, sitting around the table, going through the play and kind of sectioning it up. And then we gave each section a name. So again, I think that really helps me, is just rather than it, it feeling like page 35, which you know could be anything, that each section has a name that somehow relates to the action. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the character of Angie is uh, on a phone call to someone who's shouting at her, and we we called that section shouty, and we you know we just everybody knows now exactly what that what the section shouty is. Yeah. And then on Friday, uh, we got rid of the table and we just started just started what, doing it. sketching, which is yeah. just we just on its feet and just like go, just do it see what happens and um, I'm always astonished by how instinctively brilliant actors are that given very very little to go on they will just naturally find a pattern they're in a room and, and you sort of yeah, see and go, wow this is so well directed but I haven't done anything <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that the most amazing thing about that process was realising all the other things that all the other 
bits that we could put in it, the little relationships and the little looks that just the actors do naturally because they find them because they're in the space and they've got such amazing instincts. Um, so the amazing thing about watching the sketching process is, for me, was watching you latch on to some, a little look that an actor gave and go, oh, hold on, there's, there's something there. There's so much like, interesting character material there that we can eke out. Um, yeah, the longer I've done this for, when I started out as a director, I, felt, I always felt a huge amount of pressure in the rehearsal room to be offering up ideas mm. all the time. And actually, the longer I've done it, the more I've realised that the key actually is to just shut up <laughs> and just be, you know, and just let the actors play and experiment yeah. and they will find all this amazing, rich stuff. And so at the end of this, the end of week one, uh, how did you feel about it all? Yeah, I feel really excited. I feel really excited. It's a weird, I think it's a weird process being in rehearsals for a writer because you, because writers aren't used to how work in progress is really because you're used to having a version in your head which is though you keep changing it it's always perfect mm. and rehearsal process is is totally work in progress and it's actors throwing stuff out there some of which is brilliant and some of which you go oh right no this doesn't that doesn't work for some reason and it's so it's it's the most exciting and sometimes weird and kind of self-questioning process in the world um, but I'm excited to keep going. And keep going we shall. So, yeah. thanks for listening. Uh, this is episode one, week one, of You Stupid Podcast, a behind-the-scenes, inside-the-rehearsal-room look at rehearsals for You Stupid Darkness, brand-new play by Sam Steiner, uh, which will premiere at Theatre Plymouth in co-production between Paints Plough and Theatre Plymouth in... What, four weeks' time? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Here we go. There we go. So uh, every, we're going to do one of these every week, and we will invite various different people from the cast and creative team and people who are working on the show in to come and chat to us uh, and hopefully give a little bit of an insight into all that goes into the premiering of a new play. Thanks for listening. We will speak to you again next week. Thank you.